Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our low effort, low quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. Here's my husband, Matt. Hello, everyone. We have more plants now. None that are hanging. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't do any hanging plants. We compromised and we put some plants uh, up high on the shelf. Yes, I mean I wouldn't say a compromise because I'm fine with plants. Uh, so, just not. Ha- you know, I'm probably okay with hanging plants. It's just I have a bad memory of hanging plants is dripping and getting in your face and stuff. Okay. Well, I guess we didn't compromise. I guess I just lost. Well, there's just no room. I mean, how can you do a half-hanging plant? You know what I mean? I mean, I was willing to look at it as a compromise because they were high up okay, on well, the wall. All right. Yeah, that's fine. Then, I mean, I wasn't opposed to a high plant that was non-hanging. But you really shoot yourself in the foot more often than you know. I just like to be precise, you know? Yeah. Precision is key. It's key. Uh, so we always start off the top of our show with hot topics. The top of our show, that's the beginning in industry lingo. That's the, yeah, I call it the A block. That's <laughs> the, the A block of the show. That's our, uh, that's insider lingo. Mm, yeah. Um, the listeners are probably just, they don't even know what's going on right now. No clue. Like, well, a block, what? A, top of the show. It has no physical orientation in the world, but you know, when you don't get it. They don't get it, but when you're old hands like us at, at podcasting, yeah. you got to start using the lingo. It's true. It's true. So just ignore that, listeners. So just this ignore probably that. went over your That's head. That's just for our tech guys Yeah. in the back uh, who are handling the edits in the booth. Uh, so we're going to start off with hot topics. Uh, what's in the news? Muse in the news here. Uh Manafort's special clothes. He has an ostrich jacket. He had some other horrible looking stuff. Yeah, he bought a lot of really expensive clothing. Uh, One person theorized, I think it was uh, Chris Hayes, said that maybe the reason he's buying all this clothing is because it's hard for him, since all all the money he gets is illegal. (laughs) That it's it's just hard for him to buy other stuff and hard for him to like invest it or like basically use it in a legitimate way. Yeah. Because he was always buying this stuff with wire transfers from foreign banks. Yeah. And like one, most places do not let you purchase items uh, from them with wire transfers from foreign banks. I think that's maybe an exclusively uh, thing to places that sell $15,000 ostrich skin jackets. Um, yeah. Like, you know, Sears, you probably, if you're like, hey, I, can I just send you a wire transfer from the bank in Cyprus? Sears. They probably are like, no. At the at the J.C. Penier. We don't take uh, Cyprus uh, wire transfers. But if you're, you know, for a $15,000 item, maybe they maybe they do. What um, about the Target? Probably not, you know, and they're missing out ultimately. I mean, um, I, yeah, I feel like that's a high value store. If I couldn't spend my money at the Target, I really don't have it. Ultimately, that's just my view. It's really, is it money if you can't spend it at the Target? They have among the best candy selections. You always go to malls or, you know, other places where there are festivities, like boardwalks or piers, as they're sometimes called. And there are oftentimes these candy shops which purport to have uh, every candy 
unusual types of candy, whole shops devoted to candy, and they never rival the Target candy aisle. Like the candy in these whole stores devoted to it just sucked. It's just packaged in unusual ways. Like, oh, we have big tubes of candy or bins of candy, but the actual candy content is no better and often under quality of what you can get at your local Target. That's just my opinion. Yes, the bin candy is no better than prepackaged candy. It's it, shit. It I mean, I'll come out and efficient. say it. Well, I mean, a lot of the bin candy just is. It's like big bins of Sour Patch or whatever. Yeah, um, or or worse stuff. Like it's a huge bin of marshmallow pumpkins. I'm like, I don't. No one wants those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I but I wouldn't. I don't know what's unique about Target there. That's just saying, like, hey, uh, the purchasing of. Uh, I think they have a good selection. They have good buyers. They often have uh, candies that are hard to find at other places. I mean, yeah, you can just buy it all on Amazon, I guess. That's sort of my... my I, you really can't. I mean, honestly, Amazon's candy selection is one of the more dismal parts of the, of the Amazon shopping experience. Also, Target also is very fresh candy. Like, you never buy a bag of Airhead minis that are just, like, bricks. If they're always fresh and new... And the, the sour punch straws are never like brittle and kind of waxy, which is what they get like when they're kind of old. Like sometimes you go to a gas station and you buy a sour punch, pack of sour punch straws, and they're just kind of like you're biting into a Yankee candle with some, some crystals on it. No, yeah, the gas station candy is real questionable. Very iffy. Not 7-Eleven, though. That's the thing. They're always, they always got good, you know, fresh, uh, fresh stuff in there. They're on top of it. So that's the Manafort news. Uh, file that under who gives a shit. I don't care about it's that. It's funny. I thought yeah. it was interesting. Whatever. The, the, yeah, I like the pictures. Nice clothes, dumbass. Yeah, I Whatever. couldn't see myself wearing that, but... I uh, no, no. It all looked really odd. Yeah. It looked to me like fetish clothing, although it's not what normally one thinks it of. It may have been a, just a well store, though. I think that's the interesting why question. Would you because he can't put the money elsewhere. He can't get it. So into this the like stock it's market. like buying a gold brick. Yeah, but it's just an ugly ass jacket. Yeah, I think I think there's a very high likelihood that that's what that stuff was because he could trade it later. It was done by like a famous designer or something. So it provides you know it's it's like buying a painting or something. Why it's, not just like cash it out into cash and put it under a mattress? Yeah, I do. Th- that is a good question. I it does seem like if you're trying to launder, you would just resell the the good and and then now you have clean cash you know um but that's what i would do and then i would just buy everything in cash everywhere i went well once you get it in clean cash you can then deposit that i buy my groceries Um, in cash i mean you know at some point you have enough money for all that stuff it's just a question what do you do with all this other illicit you can't really i don't know i guess you could pay rent but i mean he owns his own house go Um, down to the bank and pay your mortgage in cash mm. here's my mortgage payment it's not really the cat not really talking about physical bills i'm saying that if you buy Um, i was actually talking about money if you buy something with illegal cash then you sell it you get clean cash and you can deposit that into a real account without (laughs) without maybe worrying too much about it but I don't know. Even that might raise some alarms if you're um, doing it too often because it's like, where are all these deposits coming from? Oh, well, I'm selling stuff I own. It's like, what do you own? What do you, you <laughs> yeah, know? whatever. So. Well, we have, we have sponsors now, so I have to read um, notes from our sponsors. The first one is Brad DeLong. Uh, Brad DeLong is sponsoring our podcast. 
Uh, J. Bradford DeLong, everything I see and do, I'm trying to be smart, knowledgeable, funny, and well-wishing. Uh, message from Brad DeLong, this podcast is sponsored by the Fifth International, private where private belongs, public where it's needed, circumstances alter cases. Also, be excellent to each other. Plus, workers of the world unite. In its honor, Brad DeLong raised his Patreon contribution to $10 per month. Thank you, Brad. I love Brad, actually. He, he, I love how he engages. I like his feistiness online. I really do. Um, you know, that's, that's for real. Even though we may uh, sometimes butt heads, I like that him and I, we can have at it. We can fight. We can, you, can, you know, um, and, and it's all good and no one gets mad, which is not the case for a lot of people. Uh, though we don't fight that much because I actually think we, we tend to agree on a lot more than we disagree on. Well, so. he's a sponsor. So friend of the show. Uh, thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate you sponsoring the cast. Yeah. He's uh he's raised his Patreon uh, donation to ten dollars per we month. We don't have a Patreon. Why are you? Uh, well, that's just what he wanted me to say. Okay. Uh, All right. So, uh, moving on. What is socialism really? This is Matt's favorite topic lately because Matt loves words and arguing over what they mean. This has put Matt into a brain liquefying autistic tailspin that he's probably not going to recover from until late two thousand nineteen. It's true. It's true. I do hate words. I hate how they impede communication. <laughs> and, you know. Matt says words are disgusting to him. Prestige prose especially. <laughs> words are awful. Oh, my God. I'm, there's nothing that clouds understanding worse than words. Um, it's unfortunate that we don't have other means. I mean, I guess we do with, like, movies and, you know, vague, you know, motifs and that sort of stuff. But I don't even understand that either. So I'm like, really? Out to, you know, I struggle. Let me put this to you. Are you a social democrat or are you a democratic socialist? Okay. You know, Matt Iglesias had a funny tweet where he said, uh, he was like, you know, I, that both those words, I believe they are uh, actual just different translations of the same German word. <laughs> this is what we're doing right now. Is so we're taking different translations but of the so, same German so this word. Is, so, I mean, one of the consequences of socialism getting attention as a real sort of possibility in, on the American scene is that it's immediately exploded into a billion pieces in terms of what it means. Uh, and, and since there is no centralized authority for socialism, there's no single unified party. People's policy project. Or representative of socialism in the United States who we can take as a, a credible voice of socialism, period. Right here. Right here. Sitting right here period, uh, everyone uh, is kind of equally credible in terms of representing what socialism is and what it means. So we have a lot of, uh, you know, inter internecine debates going on right now about what socialism is. So uh, there was a piece in, in uh, Jacobin this week arguing that socialism is more uh, than public ownership of the means of production. Uh, it's, uh, what is it? Well, I like to put it in a more dialectical uh, context here. Um, mostly because, you know, I like to imagine everything that's written is about me and what I write, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's oh, this normal. person's responding yeah. to me. Um, I have some justification here cause they did link to my piece. So, you know, yeah. anyways, the author, it's called a time to be bold by Matthew Desson It's not spelled Matthew the way I do. Um, so I don't know what's up with that. And well, then how, in what way is it spelled? Uh, M A T H E. 
excuse me, M-A-T-H-I-E-U. Well, and he's probably uh, perhaps not of, of an English-speaking anyways, origin. Anyways, okay. similar, similar but differently spelled. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael A. McCarthy. So two people put this together. Uh, I don't like co-writing stuff. Probably used a Google Doc. I don't like co-writing. <laughs> Unless it's just like someone does the writing and I I provide the math and then it works well. But other than that, I don't don't care for it. Um, anyways, so the reason why I put it in the context of uh, a response to me is, well, you know, a few uh, podcasts ago, as you note, and also on People's Policy Project, there was a, a piece in the Jackman by uh, Mr. Neil Meyer who uh, seems like a really good guy and, you know, don't have any issues, obviously, with with him or Jackman, for that matter. Um, And he wrote a piece, you know, here's what democratic socialism is contra social democracy. And he held up the Nordic societies as these are social democracies, not democratic socialists, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And you say, why, Neil? Why aren't they socialists? And he said, well, because they haven't challenged the ownership of the major corporations, Mm -hmm. right? That's all, that's private. That's privately held. And I'm said, that's not true. Look at Norway. They own the biggest oil company, the biggest telecom company. They own their hydro facilities. I mean, they own a lot of the big companies and it's a very intentional thing for them to own them. So what's up? Mm Mm-hmm. You're you're telling you're telling fibs on the Nordics. That's not good. So so that was sort of stage one. He says they don't own major corporations. I come back. I say they do. Look, here's the evidence. Very clear that they do. And he and then so I wrote my piece mm-hmm. and then and then this new piece in Jacobin, they link to me and, and they come back and they say, Here's their new reason. Okay, so they do own they do have high levels of state ownership. Yep. They admit that. You know, I, I win that point. Yeah. In the back and forth. And then, but they, it's still not socialist. It still doesn't count. Yeah, those still, are still, still those, not socialist. Those are still social democracies. Okay. So, okay. So what's the distinction now? Before it was, they don't have state ownership. Now they do. Um, but so w- w- how are we deciding that? Still not socialist though. And I say, well, socialists don't want to just replace private ownership with state ownership. Right. Okay. So used to, they were socialists cause they didn't, they weren't socialists cause they didn't have state ownership. Now state ownership doesn't even count. Now these are different authors, but like follow the yep. dialectic here. Yeah. In the same way that we don't believe that capitalists should be able to have disproportionate control over economic resources, we don't think unaccountable state officials and bureaucrats should have the power to control investment and production through, quote, socialism from above. In some cases, like the former Soviet Union, the failings of such a system are nearly as deep as those of capitalism itself. So they go, hey, just because the state owns it, that doesn't make it socialist, because what if the state is made up of unaccountable state officials and bureaucrats? Look at the Soviet Union. The state own the means of production there but it was a dictatorship and they weren't accountable to their people and so on fair that's fine but that's not true of the nordic mm-hmm. countries mm-hmm. and in their own piece they say yeah these are political democracies the state officials in those countries are not unaccountable they're mm-hmm. elected and often kicked out of office through voting you know like right. you know so what are we doing here 
first she said they don't own. First, you know, someone says they don't have state ownership. I come back and say they do. Now someone says, oh, they do, but implicitly the state bureaucrats are unaccountable. That's not true. They are accountable. So now I'm still in the stage where I'm like, I don't know what the distinction here is. What's left? The, the things that you guys are using to distinguish them and say those are not the real ones, uh, they don't work. They're not accurate distinctions. Um, so that's sort of where we are. And, and the way this became a hot topic more generally was people seized on the claim in the last sentence I read. In some cases, like the former Soviet Union, the failings of such a system are nearly as deep as those of capitalism itself. So they seize on the phrase, are nearly as deep as capitalism itself. And then everyone just, oh, black book of communism. And they just sort of the kind of garbage that you see at any sort of libertarian conference or whatever, that everyone just sort of seizes up and they're like, this is great. I have a peg to just repeat the garbage. They usually repeat about, you know, what about the famines and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think Chait did that. Connor mm -hmm. Frears right. did that. And I'm not really interested in like having that debate. It seems like this is a throwaway sort of, you know, I mean, they, they could edit that sentence and it would probably be fine. Um, but it is also true that the uh, generic thing where you just kind of repeat the black book of communism or whatever and yeah. use that peg, yeah. um, it misses that, you know, there is a, counter comparison where people try to add up the bodies of capitalism and Amartya Sen actually did this Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya mm -hmm. Sen really yeah. kind gentleman familiar yeah um, he did a book on India mm -hmm. and uh, the upshot of uh, of that book was uh, that uh, in India alone where mm -hmm. we have a kind of democratic capitalism we have more than 100 million deaths just in India, you know, in a capitalist order that are sort of, um, you know, unnecessary deaths, like excess beyond what, say, China or other countries have had. Um, so, you know, I even find that kind of silly. It's like, you want to count up the bodies? All right. Amartya Sen counted up the bodies and, he, you know, he says that... Uh, he, he he came up with a uh, clearly capitalism uh, more than communism, um, but that's not to. I'm not trying to defend, you know, the Soviet Union or whatever. No, I just, no, but I just so, find so, so the debate so stupid. So if you if you have to pull back from this debate and offer a positive definition of you know the kind of socialism you're thinking about, you know, what is that? What is the definition of that political economy? Well, so this reminded me of uh, a piece I wrote a long time ago. Mm -hmm in uh, December of 2013. So we're going wow. way back. I was graduating college that next spring. Yeah. Oh, I was still days. just a normal blogger, the golden the golden age of mattbrunig.com. It was, yeah. We were still in law school. Yeah, I just started law school. No. Oh, no, I was a couple years in. Yeah, you were a couple years in. And it's called the three levels of politics. That's what I uh, identified it as. That's back when you were on your mystical shit. I like it. No, it's not mystical. I like it, though. It is mystical. And I, I say, like the first sentence, mm -hmm. I think of politics on three levels. Okay. One, the abstract normative level. Yeah. That's philosophy. That's principles. I believe in equality. I believe sure. the masses should be in control. Right. And that sort of thing. It's sort yeah. of an abstract Groundwork. thing. Groundwork. Yeah. Number two is the ideal institutions level. Yeah. So this is sort of like, if you had to design a society from scratch, 
you know, so tell me what it's going to look like. There's going to be a state and we're going to have like yeah. companies and the companies are going to be owned by this. And like you're sort of mapping out sort of the laws almost yeah. of the state. And then the third I say, and this is somewhat unrelevant here, is the non-ideal second best level of politics where it's like, okay, I've mapped out my ideal society, mm -hmm. but obviously we don't live in an ideal society. And so what's the best way forward given... Mm -hmm history given all this sort of stuff you know and what happens in these debates about what socialism is and isn't right over and over again what happens is you'll have someone like me for instance who i'll say i'll be on level two the mm -hmm. ideal institutions level and i'll say here's an ideal socialist system here's my approach um right mm -hmm. or i you know we're trying to get equality. We're trying to get social ownership. We're trying to get that kind of stuff. That's the abstract goals. Here's my way of doing it, mm -hmm. okay? We're going to have a social wealth fund. We're all going to own an equal part of this fund. Yeah. The government's going to run it. They're going to um, own all the capital through that fund. And you might have multiple funds and that whatever is necessary to kind of make administratively work. But we're all going to own shares of those, an equal share of, of those funds. And through that mechanism, we get collective ownership of the masses of capital. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in the workplace, what we're going to have is, you know, the workers, they're, they're going to be organized into labor unions on the sector level. Yeah. So they're going to be able to negotiate their own terms and conditions. They're also, we're, we're going to give them a third of the board seats for their companies. The other two thirds of the board seats obviously are going to be elected by the wealth fund, which is we all own an equal part of. Um, and it's sort of sort of trace it out. And I'm like, we'll have collective ownership. Then we're going to have unions and co-determination and blah, blah, blah. Right. And the way that you can respond to any attempt, not just mine, but any attempt to spell out what the ideal institution should look like is you go. Ideal institution A is not socialism. Socialism is when the masses are in control, right. when the workers are in control. So what you do is you reject the ideal institution and then you, the alternative you propose is phrased on level one, the abstract normative level. So mm -hmm. here I am talking on level two about here's what the design will look like. And you go reject design. My alternative is, and then you shoot up to level one and go, the workers are in control. The workers have power, mm. right? So you shift from the one level to the other level to, to defeat it, but I'm still not clear then what, like, what is your ideal institution? Right. Because right? I think I am implementing that. Right, right. So what's your, what is your alternative? Right. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have one, but it's like, I don't know what this discussion is. Right, because it's happening on two different levels. Yeah, it's happening on two different levels. And that's how most of their piece unfolds. They do at one point um, provide uh, one sentence where they just list three alternatives. They don't explain them or, you know, compare and contrast them with, mm -hmm. you know, a democratic state owner. And the, the three alternatives are grassroots state planning agencies. Ooh. Ooh. Worker cooperatives. Yep. And participatory boards. Oh, God, spare me. Yeah, one, obviously, you're uh, like, oh, man, how many more meetings do I have to go to? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. But the thing I found interesting about them is they are representative structures, just like a state 
mm-hmm. right? The grassroots state planning agency, it's not going to be like every human being <laughs> on this mm-hmm. agency. It's going to be some group of people. And I guess they're going to be grassroots people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not going to be everyone. And so, yeah. you know, we could just as well go the grassroots states planning agency. That's socialism from above. That's not the masses in control and just do that same garbage, you know, which I called a classic socialist mad lib where, <laughs> where you just go, you just go blank is not socialism. Socialism is when the masses are in control. So you go worker cooperatives. That's not socialism. Socialism is when the masses are in control. And you just do that every time someone proposes something, you just do that. Um, and it's great. It's awesome. It gives you endless fodder to write journal pieces and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Real but, socialism has never been tried. But all of them work like that, right? So yeah. worker co-op, how does worker co-op work, right? The workers own the business, but they elect leaders, right? You're going to have someone who's managing the business on a day-to-day basis. You're going to elect board members or whatever, right? Participatory boards. I'm not even sure what the hell that is, but like I Googled it and there were some things that came up and, but that's the same kind of thing. A board is a board, right? Right. There's a handful of people on the board who, you know, are accountable to some group of people, which is what a state is like if it's democratic, right? Right. right. We just call the state a participatory board. Um, and in fact, one of the three things that they proposed actually is the same thing as state ownership, but they've just cleverly reworded it, right? So grassroots state planning agency. Mm-hmm. Well, state planning agency, that's just state ownership. Yeah. State owns, and, and so they're the planner. They, there's some agency that is planning the ownership. State planning agency. And now you just slap grassroots in front of it, and it's real-time, big-time socialism. Um, it's silly. I find the whole thing silly. And I don't mean to, like, criticize people who have different preferences well, for it's how all, it's to... It's all right to argue. I mean. Right. I, it's okay to have different preferences about how, like, what is the precise institutional form that we want collective ownership to take? I get that. But to go, I like this particular institutional form and then just reject others and go, that's not socialism. That's Mm -hmm. silly, right? I've got a preference where I think, hey, a democratically elected state is a great institution to use for, you know, social ownership. And if you don't like that, that's fine. But like it's we're still like in the same club as as uh, on the on the normative level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that's. That was sort of my, uh, as you said, a uh, meltdown of the of the week, just 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 mentally. So our show is also brought to you by Equinor. Equinor, the people's oil. Every week, Equinor appoints a new Norwegian to be the head of their corporate board, and you can log on to Twitter at, at @Equinor and see the uh, tweeter of the week, and that is the head of their corporate board, and it switches every week. Every week, a uh, new one. Every week, a new Norwegian is the head of Equinor. It's and not only uh, oil these days, I should say. That's part of why they rebranded. They did they have some wind and stuff too. Well, that's just what they told me to put in the release, and uh, and so that uh, the new Norwegian of the week has uh, control of Equinor and the at uh, Equinor Twitter account, and you can log on and see what's on their mind. So, uh, thank you, Equinor. They are contributing fifteen bucks a month to the Patreon account. Uh, appreciate There's no Patreon. I, I should just keep emphasize that's just but that's what they want me to that's what was in the release they sent me so i really appreciate it and thank you to equinor thank you anything else in hot topics i don't know there was a hot topic today but i don't really care too much for it oh Um, the twitter thing don't try to get people fired 
Don't try to get people fired. Don't ever try to get anybody fired. Who cares? Oh, my God. People got to have jobs. There are people who love the news. They love the news. <laughs> there are people who love the news. And like... They are news lovers. And like for the news for them is like sports for other people. Dude. And it's legitimately... like It reminds me exactly of like... Um, LA, the LA uh, uh, Lakers just got LeBron James. What do you think of that? Should they should pick up LeBron James? Do, the like, king. Right. It's like, and it's like, <laughs> it's one thing to consume the news, but you're on that next level. Just in the same way, it's one thing to just be like, I like watching the game. I don't even care about the content of the news. Yeah. I just well, care about the news figures who right. are participating it's in like, the news. I don't, I just, I'm not, it's not enough for me to just watch the game. I don't care who wins the game and consume the product. I, I want to know. Characters. I want to know about yeah. literally hires and fires who is the general manager uh who's the receptionist is debbie like really cut out to be the (laughs) dallas cowboys receptionist like there's all this sort of uh (laughs) and like there are some people who who've gotten to that level on the news i'm surprised there's not like a news fantasy football uh type situation where you can like i would absolutely hang myself for diehard twitter heads absolutely hang myself who's on the board of this publication like Jeez Louise. Who cares? Um, Consume the news. You know. Uh, guess what? You know, um, they're going to be writing somewhere, period. One thing, <laughs> one thing I've like, noticed, which is like, out. talk about really unhealthy impulses that are developing is like, so now there's like, there's like a predictable pattern where anytime that like a kind of edgy liberal gets hired somewhere, it's, you know, it takes about six minutes to dig up a bunch of tweets where they're like, you know, cancel white people all white people should burn in hell or whatever because like that was just kind of the mode in which people tweeted for a while there 13 14 you know that was the kind of edgelord irony mode and like you know if you were in a certain clique and you ran in certain circles that's just kind of how they did things and that's what happened with quid norton and uh with a certain stream of writers that's basically all of them And, uh, you know, you can like it, lump it or feel indifferent about it. There is a conservative counterpart to that edgelordism. It's out there. And uh, conservatives, I think David French was doing this, Eli Lake. But they're like, hey, I don't think that you should get fired. And I just want you to remember that for the next time a conservative says the (laughs) N-word. You're like, holy shit, are we banking credits now? Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) oh God, that's so unhealthy that like they're like openly and publicly storing up credits. So for the next time, uh, you know, someone comes up with a tweet where like a conservative, uh, you know, called someone a racial slur or something and liberals are like, wow, that's really bad. Uh, they should be fired. Conservatives can be like, hey, remember when I said that uh, Sarah Jiang shouldn't be fired for saying white people should be uh, kicked off the Internet? How about you show me the same respect, boy? And I'll be, oh, my God, just what a horrible vortex we're in of just bad will and bad faith, horse trading. Yeah, well, it's not even a horse trade. It's a dumb horse trade because there's no way that's going to be respected. There's I mean, no, like I mean, like we said like eight episodes ago. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's never going to be respected. You can, yeah, it's like... It's not going to be respected. And there's also, no reciprocation. 
there's no it's like it's like the dims no. in congress being like you know what if we uh, if we kind of give them some respect and give them some some say so then when mm. the shoe was on the other foot it's like no they'll the, kick you in the nuts the when game the shoe's theory on the, other foot. the game theory is completely collapsed right the prisoner's dilemma is gone it's just yeah. kill 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 <laughs> uh, like that's always the answer Defect, 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 right? I guess that's the, uh, that's the, those are the two options in the prisoner's dilemma. Right. The reason that we don't try to get people fired is not to bank credits for the future when someone on our side does work. something stupid because won't that work. won't work. The reason we don't try to get people fired is a matter of personal principle because we would like to be moral people. Yeah, I also don't really care. You know, great. That's real nice, Matt. Way to just totally jack up the whole segment. No, I mean, I think it's right, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's part. It's just like, come on, guys. I mean, that's you know, even even when they you know disagree with us or when they're significantly different than us. I mean, this is uh, when Twitter starts to bleed into real life and it, it impacts people's livelihoods and jobs. I mean, that's what happened to us, and it was honestly really painful. I mean, I, I it was really bad. It was a really bad time when that happened to us, and uh. And when that starts happening to other people and I can feel myself getting sucked into it, I don't like that. And I don't, that's Twitter making me someone I don't want to be and someone I'm not proud of. And I never want to participate in that. And I, I really hate seeing it happen. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, it, I hate that I damn mean, part, machine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's that's true of ev- everywhere. You know, when people get fired for reasons that, especially that have nothing to do with the competence of like the product yeah it's like who cares like you know it's like i don't know i was a labor attorney briefly uh before i got fired for (laughs) tweeting um and you know you see these people and like their bosses get mad at them it's like well doesn't does this guy not do what he's supposed to do does he not come in here and cut these logs (laughs) when i was doing the like uh sawmill um stuff he cuts the logs the logs are cut well, so who cares? When Just I get when I go, get fired, man. what do you think I'm going to get fired for? I don't think you get fired. The, the Washington Post editorial um, section seems to be a very, very, very stable. Um, like way more than you know you see anywhere else, really. I love my job and I love my bosses. Yeah, it seems like a great job, frankly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I when mean, but it's like Olive Garden. When you're there, you're family. <laughs> but it is weird. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Yeah. I mean, there is an aspect to it, though, where you're like when you have people who try to do this stuff and then and then people try to do it to them in which you're like, I don't feel good about this, but I'm all. But there's also an element of like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not that turnabout is fair game, but like, you know reflect a little bit on on what Just you've done with your life yeah i mean you know i am i have removed myself as a player in that game i i want no part of it i will not participate in it i don't want any of it i will never try to get anyone fired unless there's like a risk that they're the you know incompetence that they're performing in their job is that causing death or dismemberment but just for just for the crime of pissing me off i will never try to get anyone fired um because it was so bad when it happened to us. Uh, I mean, it's just one of those like transformative things where, you know, I, I just, I never want to see that happen. Oh, yeah. Well, I never want to yeah. see that happen. In my to case, else. it was a really, it was really bad because into my legal career. Also, I was 38 weeks pregnant and going into some unpaid leave. And uh, you lost both your jobs and we were a one income household while I was about to take off for maternity leave. And, uh, and then your sister was killed. 
Yeah, that was uh, unrelated. Unrelated, though. but it added some pressure in a rough time. And oh yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely a. It was pushes you deeper into the into the the black void. Yeah, you can see it piles up and people get depressed or whatever. Yeah, but it's all good now. So yeah. Make more money now than I made at the board. I always thought that was funny when people were posting like, Matt has a job at the NLRB. And then someone like went, because you can go online and yeah, see the I pay. Know. You can go online and see how much everyone yeah. makes in the government. I didn't find any of it funny. Yeah. And the, <laughs> I was making 56 grand, which yeah, is like fine. That's a fine salary. But like I was giving up 180 grand possibility at a big law firm yeah. in order to work at the NLRB. Right, because it's what you believed in and it's what we had talked about. <laughs> it's like um, this is not an extravagant salary. It was a dream job and something that you really cared about and now you'll never do it again because uh of Twitter. I uh I hate Twitter and um I mean, there are several times a day where I wish that I wasn't involved in the media whatsoever. I mean, this is, uh, that whole episode still feeds into my deep hatred of the media, uh, which I'm a part of. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it forms into this sort of um, bottomless well of self-hatred that I have, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. Yeah, there's this goofy panoptic nature to it, which is both driven by, like, the public nature of it and then dri driven by the news lovers, you know? Like I was telling you, the people who who are like the sports people who are who are scrutinizing front office decisions or back office i don't i think it's called front office where it's like personnel and what are they doing and so like you know like like you would for a professional athlete like there's a there's a whole crew of people who do that and it's just like you know that's not common for other <laughs> industries like i don't imagine that like you know people are going around and, and being like Let's keep track of uh, where the forklifters are at. How are the forklifters doing? Uh, oh well, uh, is Randy being problematic today? <laughs> oh well, uh, John is, is he's going over to uh, he's going over to an Amazon warehouse. It's okay. interesting. Well, let's uh, uh, don't try to get people fired. Uh, mind your own biscuits, and life will be gravy. Casey Musgraves. Is yep. that her name? She's an excellent artist. And oh, uh, I, love, I love. She's one of my favorites right she now. She is fantastic. Five, she's I mean, non-ironically. No, she's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, real people on the other side of the internet, even if you don't like them, even if they annoy you, even if they're totally obnoxious. I have people in my feed every day asking me if my if my daughter is my husband's child and like other just horrible, annoying shit. And I'm just like, you know, whatever, man. Yeah. I know you hope my kid gets eaten by an alligator. <laughs> I don't care. I, uh, you know. The what gator tweet ended that lady. She's not been on Twitter. Maybe she has a secret account now. I don't know. Well, you know, maybe it set her free, honestly. Like, I hope she didn't get fired. Oh, yeah. And I hope it just set her free from the hell that it's Twitter. I no, mean, when I was off Twitter for a while, it was really quite pleasant. I mean, it's a little tough because you were not off Twitter. And so there was a sort of mismatch. But I definitely like uh, if everyone gets you know, in your life is gets off Twitter. It's, that's a pleasant thing. And I've also just stopped being on Twitter a lot because I have a, I do a lot of work during the day these well, days. Well, you know, yeah, that's a good option. Logging off is a good option. And also staying on Twitter and just not participating in uh, full scale raids to try to ruin people's real lives and just, you know, take yeah. the internet a little less seriously. Oh yeah. No, the Twitter 
yeah. joking period is gone. Yeah. That's, that's Twitter's a really not fun anymore. Oh, it was the funniest place online for like it five was, years, and yeah. now it's just hell. It's just awful. Anyway, so today, uh, that's the end of Hot Topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Brunig Canon. Uh, so several folks asked about the essential reading material you need uh, to be caught up on the, the Brunig mindset. Uh, and, uh, and so we've, we've rounded up a few of our favorite works that we're just going to talk about real quick. Um, so, uh, I'm going to start you off with, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us about the myth of ownership? The myth of ownership by, um, uh, Thomas Mr. Nagel, Mr. Murphy and Mr. Nagel. Um, Messers, yeah. This was a book written in the 1990s or 2000s. Yep. Um, and... You know, the upshot here is just uh, they're taking on this, the way that we speak about ownership in society, where we think of ownership as this kind of pre-political thing. It's like, well, separate from the laws and separate from society, I own this table. I own this microphone. I own this house. And so we have these things that we own, and then we go engage in politics, and we then engage in society. So these are kind of their 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 structures. The, the ownership is somehow a non-social, non-political thing. And of course, they come back with the uh, rather obvious, but at times very necessary insight that no, that's not true at all. Ownership is entirely political. It's completely defined by our legal institutions and. What you own is a, a function of what our laws say you own. And so you can't say, hey, this violates my property rights when you're referring to some law because the law defines your property rights. If the law says this is not yours, then it is not yours because what makes something yours is the law. Boom. And this is something that, you know, has been really important for you know, trying to explain to libertarians because and they, they have this concept of uh, what they call everyday libertarianism, right, which is key. This yeah. is key to Brunigism. Everyday libertarianism is this way that we speak in the discourse where we say where all of our phrasing is based on this notion that property precedes politics, that property is something that you own separate from it and that politics then invades. And so we talk about things like, you know, taxes are a good example. Uh, the way we talk about taxes is, is we say, this is my money, and then taxes, the government takes some of it. And, right, right. And that, that's how you get sort of the libertarian... Taxes are theft. Taxes are theft kind of thing. And they're like, well, no, taxes define, are one of the institutions that define your income. Right. Right? So your income is your disposable income. Right. Whatever you have after taxes, after benefits, after all that's said and done, that yeah. is your income. Disposable income synonymous with income. That's yours. Yep. That's what it, you are legally entitled right. to. So that is your property. Yep. And for you that, to then go back and be like, but if you didn't tax me, I would have more. And you're like, yeah, but also if we had higher taxes, you would have less. <laughs> right? Like, you know, right. or if we had a different rules, you would have less. Like we could go on and on, but that's not how we talk about it. You know, right. we talk about taxes as like taking pieces of our, of our income as opposed to being the one of the ways that our income is determined in the first place. Sure. Um, and so I, I always thought that was a, yeah, yeah that, that was a useful book. That's a useful um, book. It's a very, and it's short. 
It's a little sliver of a book. Yeah, it's relatively short. The idea is pretty short. And I mean, you know, it's been around. Robert Hale is another uh, guy that I like. And he was writing in the early 20th century. He was one of the big legal realists. And, and this was basically his point as well, um, you know, for, for us to talk about income and wealth and all these sorts of things is... Um, as being independent and preceding the coercive state is nonsense. All of these things are determined by the precise ways that the state applies its coercion, mm -hmm. right? They're determined by, you know, what, what everything you own is determined by a, a cocktail of institutions, which we call bankruptcy law, corporations right. law, labor law, right. tax law. We could go on and on that cocktail of institutions is what determines what is yours. And, you know, that's just descriptively what's going on. And for you to come and say, no, no, that institution is stealing from me is to, in a way, beg the question about what is yours. Well, don't spoil so. it for them. Uh, we want them to read it. Uh, so so uh, then what is property by Monsieur Proud Han? Yes. Is that how you say it? <laughs> no, it's Proudhon. Proudhon. Yeah. yeah, it's Proudhon. Yeah, Proudhon is one of the most entertaining writers ever, but Proudhon, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he, he, the old Brunig. he just, yeah, it's funny that, that don't, don't skip the preface. If you get the book, at least I get, he talks in the preface about the problems he's having with the French state. <laughs> Proudhon's like to mine haters. <laughs> the, the French state is funding his research project, which is the col which culminates in this book. And he, you know, is sending them their progress, his progress. And the French state is like increasingly agitated and pissed off about <laughs> what his project is leading to, which is, you know, the view that property is theft and <laughs> that sort the of thing. Property is like fake. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the thesis of his, his book is just like, hey, we, you know, uh, Contra Locke, who says that, you know, w when you acquire property, you're really just kind of acquiring something that's part of you. Mm. Uh, no, like, let's talk about land in particular here. Uh, there is a set amount of land in the world. Um, initially, nobody owns any of it. And for you to come into ownership of any part of it means that you're taking that land from other people because... Mm -hmm they could have that land or alternatively we could all own it collectively or whatever. Um, I always use the example. He doesn't use this, but it's, it's driven by his insight of, of uh, Frisbee access, right? So at, at time one, or I should say time zero in history, the initial point of history, you could go anywhere in the world and play Frisbee. But as property comes in, your ability to play Frisbee, it keeps getting shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And now I, I have like this park over here by my house. Yeah, only, we can almost go barely anywhere. That's right? the only place I can play Frisbee. And so my ability to play Frisbee just keeps getting stolen and stolen and stolen and stolen. And that's what property does to you. And, you know, I mean, the real upshot there is just to kind of, it really is the same as the myth of ownership. Right? Your rights are just whittled away. Which is that, yeah. look, property is a coercive institution. It is an aggressive institution. It involves, you know, taking from people or excluding people from things. And, you know, don't let the uh, lowercase l liberals tell you otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's excellent. And he's, he is a very entertaining uh, polemicist. polemicist. Uh, we do have a sponsor, uh, Epivestments Investments for today's epileptic investor. Uh, investor. Uh, solid investments for a shaky world. Epivestments. Epivest. That's great. Yeah. yeah Epivestments. So think about that. Uh, if you're epileptic like me, you want to make some investments, check in with Epivestments. Yeah. What are some of your books? 
Uh, well, you also had a theory of justice on here. Oh, yeah. John yeah. Rawls. You got to read yeah. John Rawls. You know, he's a democratic socialist. Nobody realizes this except me and this one guy who wrote a book about it. whose name is Edmund, I think. I remember that um, long summary. You read that whole big, thick brick of a book. Yeah. The thinner one that came out in his later life is the one where uh, it, it's it's quite clear to me that he's a socialist. And the same uh, read is from this other uh, guy who read it once. <laughs> so you and one other correct person. Well, people always were like, this avatar is weird. But I realized I didn't read the book in a class. Yeah. I just read it by myself. I was there. And I yeah. read the other one by myself. And, you know. We were living in D.C. together while we both, uh, we were both like working in the summer. And then, uh, and there was no TV or internet. Yeah. I, ha I had no reference for the book. I had no idea what it, you know, was thought to be about. Yeah. I just knew like, oh, this is a, a, a prominent um, egalitarian philosopher. I would like to know a theory um, of justice. Yeah. What's going on here? And thankfully I'd read like Kant and all, yeah. you know, the people that he keeps referencing and had, a, I think, a decent handle on them. And then I read it and I was like, okay, well, he seems like, he seems like a, he's probably a socialist. He at least uh, definitely um, says that a certain kind of socialism is, uh, satisfies his theory. And to me, it seems like it's the only thing that satisfies it. Um, and then I go out into the world and they're like, no, he, he's a welfare capitalism. That's what he supports. Hmm. I'm like, hmm. that does not seem right to me. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, there's this book by a guy. I think he called I think the title is John Rawls, the reluctant socialist. Yeah. And he has a whole theory that's spun out on the book. That's very similar to, to what I took away from it yeah. when I read it. Um, and then he also has other like, you know, stuff about his life where he's like, did you know John Rawls' main mentor was a guy named James Mead, who was a socialist in the UK, a uh, very prominent uh, democratic socialist in the UK. That's like where he actually got a lot of his terminology that he uses in the books, wh which is otherwise kind of uh, strange. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then he's like, did you know John Rawls was a Southerner? And, he, you know, he was around uh, Hillary Putnam. And Hillary Putnam had come out as like a Maoist and really took a lot of heat for it. And so John Rawls was probably less interested in, you know, say, lining up with a party or something. That was yeah. kind of gauche for a philosopher. But uh, you can kind of read between the lines, blah, blah, blah. So, it's yeah. a, you know, it's an interesting, it's interesting hot. book. Uh, so I always recommend Augustine's City of God. Uh, to, to sort of uh, take you further back in the historical record, this is written during late antiquity, the fall of, uh, if you want to put it in those terms, the Roman Empire, uh, the end of the, of the late antique period and leading into the Middle Ages. Augustine is, of course, the Bishop of Hippo, which is in North Africa. Um, and uh, and he, he writes uh, City of God against the pagans. Uh, the main conceit that you, you typically hear coming out of uh, City of God is the notion that there are sort of two cities. There's the City of God and the City of Man, uh, and they are sort of overlapping and always and everywhere entangled uh, during life here on Earth. And, and what they are are two orientations towards two different ends. Um, uh, the ends of uh, the self, which is the uh, life in the city of man, and then the end in, in eternal life in God, and that's life in the city of God. And, and uh, we're all, uh, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian and you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, a denizen of both. Uh, and, uh, and so it, he, he has lots of different subjects. He's a very rangy writer. 
he's a very big book and he goes over lots and lots and lots of materials. So there's some, you know, kind of pseudo mystical stuff in there. If you're interested in like angels and whatnot, that's covered. Uh, but there's also just a lot of interesting stuff in there about politics. Um, and what I find interesting about Augustine is he talks about politics in what I think is like a pretty rational and pre-liberal way. Uh, and so one thing that's hard when you're, when you're trying to do politics uh, is, is uh, you're, you're trying to uh, think about things outside of uh, the typical liberal framework, uh, which says, you know, well, there are you know, these few primary goods and they're basically a kind of liberty uh, that, that prizes uh, personal, private individualism, freedom. Uh, and, and, and you're trying to think about, well, what if we thought about a politics that uh, centered around something like a common good? And uh, Augustine, uh, who writes very beautifully about that uh, in a way that I think is untainted by liberalism because it hadn't happened yet, uh, so it doesn't refer to it. Uh, and it, it, it is, it's, it's helpful. He's, he's also a Platonist, which I am. Um, and so it's helpful if you've read Plato, um, but you don't have to have. And uh, even, if, even if you don't like the politics, uh, it's, it's interesting to get a grip on what a common good-centered politics, you know, sort of might be structured like. Uh, for history, Hobsbawm, I would read Eric Hobsbawm. He's a Marxist historian. His chronicles of uh, European history are fantastic. He writes especially well about the rise of capital and uh, what that did to, uh, you know, heretofore traditional life uh, in Europe. Uh, and then the creation of false traditional life on top of the rubble uh, is a really interesting topic. So after capitalism comes and upends what has been traditional life in Europe for centuries uh, and permanently destroys it, there is no going back, then you start getting a lot of nationalist-type uh, movements that sort of romanticize folklore and stuff with the aim of uh, rebuilding or inventing a kind of tradition to replace what has been lost. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is invention. Hobsbawm writes very well about all of this. Very smart guy. Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. It's a novel. takes place in the Middle Ages. It's a murder mystery, uh, but it's also very theological. And it, it asks a lot of questions about what we can know. Uh, so it's an epistemological novel as well, which I think is very fun. And I think they're making a prestige series about it. Um, so if you're like uh, Matt and you maybe don't prefer the novels as much as the television, you can also just wait on the prestige series. Uh, and I'm also a big Dostoevsky fan. I would always recommend Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment. And if you want something short instead of those two big novels, uh, the short story, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man, is my favorite of Dostoevsky's. Uh, which I would recommend. And these are all just for moral formation. I think that uh, as much as anything, being morally prepared uh, to think about politics is important. Uh, so so those, are my, those are my contributions to the Brunig canon. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so for the last segment of the show, uh, we were talking uh, before, before we settled in, and... Uh, you mentioned and other and some people wrote in that there's there hasn't just been a Liz portion of the show, so uh, yeah, I keep pushing. For I that. know, so so Liz is the one that I should you know. This you're, is they're the reluctant one on that. I know, so I've I've held off on it, but uh, we have a few minutes here left at the end of the show to do a mind of Liz, uh, kind of like a mind of a chef segment. Mind of a chef, yes. mind of a Liz. Ooh, that, I, I don't know how to translate that over into politics exactly. Well, it, you know, it doesn't just have to be politics. I can mm -hmm. talk about uh, things that I like, motifs. Uh, yeah. Images. So what are yeah? So what so what are some things that you like? 
I like hiding. Uh, like hiding. I do. I do. I um like hide and go seek. Yeah, well, I mean, you you know this about me as I love to be hidden. Um and like have people not know exactly where I am or what I'm doing. Um this is this is something that I like. I like it about bird watching. I like that uh I like the concealment aspect of bird watching. I like the uh, concealment and observation aspect of journalism. Um I even like that aspect of uh, reading novels that you you also become sort of a, a third party concealed observer, and that's why I like detective fiction so much, um, is because of that sensation of being a hidden participating observer. Um, I really enjoy that. Uh, you know, I think that knowing something is on a spectrum of loving, uh, and knowing, just knowing, having information about. And absorbing and thinking about something brings you pretty close to loving, if not puts you squarely on it. Um, and so that's kind of how I think about birds and the subjects of my journalism and the subjects of my religious contemplation. Just observing and thinking about and meditating on is a kind of loving. But for whatever neurotic reason, I like to do it from a position of concealment. Yeah. I also like to uh, to be anonymous. Um, yeah, yeah, we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hiddenness. Yeah. I would prefer to observe. Yeah, I just don't like people paying attention to me in real life. Yeah. Online, I well, even online, I prefer. Let's look at my arguments, my ideas. I don't want you. I don't like to. You know. It's good to be in a foreign country where no one knows who you are. It's good to go out at night. Well, I don't get spotted on the street. I mean, <laughs> but like around people who, you know, not in, in the office where people know who you are, you know, it's right. good to be at home instead of in the office. It's good to be hidden. It's good to be in a place where you almost sort of ex- uh, don't exist. I mean, like, uh, you know, dissolving into shadow or dissolving into deep water. That's an ongoing fantasy. That's a motif I appreciate. It's part of why I like the Batman aesthetic so much, especially when it's done in a very nice noir style, is there's quite a bit of shadow uh, on the page, typically. Um, You open up some of those really nice uh, noir Batman comics, and there's more black on the page than anything else. Uh, that's, That's really nice. And I like film noir for the same reason. Big Nordic noir. There is a, a huge, it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. And I am also a big fan. Yeah. Um, I was reading that one of the Finland noir things has just come out on Netflix. Yeah. So check that out. Yeah. A lot of self-doubt. That's another <laughs> reason I like to hide. Uh, certainly the tweet deletion ha- habit. And if I could delete everything I've ever written, like if it was possible for me to delete all my Washington Post articles periodically, I certainly would. Not me. My stuff is classic. It's all instant classic. I would delete everything I've ever written if I had the capability to. I wouldn't even delete my tweets if it weren't the case that people would try to get me fired all the time. Didn't you ever just want to erase yourself and just just vanish? Isn't that just a very appealing thought? Especially if you could still have consciousness, but just no essence. Um, that's very attractive to me. 
I see what you mean. Uh, no, I don't. Not, I don't necessarily. I do kind of like the idea of like, wouldn't it be nice if I could just quit everything and just like go out into a more uh, isolated area and just sort of uh, do my own thing, you know? I guess having a self just feels like a huge burden. Like, oh, I have this thing I'm responsible for. And it, it, it accrues, uh, accumulates problems over time that I have to deal with. Oh, yeah. No, I, I do dislike the accumulation effect of, of life. <laughs> you know? So I could see why it's like, well, if I could delete things as I go, then I only have to deal with, you know, one year of existence at a time. The yeah. accumulation is really tough, uh, you know yeah you get into problems with people and those don't ever resolve and then that's still kind of chasing you Uh, that's yeah and it seems like such a waste you know yeah well i think we're uh i like plants you can tell i love i like the plants i like the plants i like the birds uh big flower fan birds are the Flora of fauna. Uh, love Jane. Jane's really, really great. Yeah, I like Jane. She's really good. She's really sweet. We have a really sweet baby. I was worried that she wouldn't like me when she was. Remember when we were pregnant? I was like, I'm worried the baby's not going to like me. And you were like, No, it's it's brain chemicals. Well, yeah. As long as you're nice to her. You know, the, she comes out liking you and you can only ruin No, but it, I remember I know? thought she would like, she would have some preternatural sense that I was a dork and she would just be born knowing that my mom's a huge no, loser. That's ridiculous. And she would just be able to sense it. Like she would just know by looking at me. That's one, one thing I've had uh, since I was a little tiny kid is the sense that when I walk into a room, people know I'm a dork by looking at me. Like they can just sense there's something off about me just by looking at me. Well, obviously that's, that's, that's not obviously that's mentally unwell. I would call that, but you want to talk. Well, I bet I acknowledge, you know, <laughs> so I think we're, you know, we're, we're just over w- one hour at this point. So we probably need to, bring it to a close do you have any closing thoughts no i think you just you just own me into silence and there's no recovery from no it wasn't an own i was just trying to encourage you to you know you know that's ridiculous how someone could see you for the first time and think you know people can tell if you're dorky by looking at you have you ever you we've, we've we've briefly discussed the film welcome to the dollhouse on this pod before but that's a very formative film to me i still feel like that never seen it but no that's all uh for this week's uh i mean this is by no means a weekly scheduled it's been weekly though it has been but no i wouldn't count on it coming out every week i wouldn't count on it no Uh, because sometimes the baby doesn't cooperate yeah we gotta shuffle we gotta get the sponsors together we gotta get this hurting the sponsors has really (laughs) been difficult uh so just log on to our patreon <laughs> there's no patreon and uh thank you to our sponsors to brad delong epivestments and equinor and uh all i would take money from equinor no i wouldn't i feel i feel bad about that and uh all of our uh, all of our patrons on patreon thank you very much bye 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 <laughs>